If you have your Bibles, you want to turn with him to Matthew chapter 17. We're going to be in chapter 17, verse 24, going to uh, chapter 18, verse 5. And today on this Mother's Day is a perfect day to begin a new subsection in our larger series. So the larger series we've been doing since January is called The House That Jesus Builds. And we're looking at Matthew 16 through 20 because there Jesus says that he's going to build his house and then in 16 through 20, he gives the blueprint for how he's going to do it. And there's four different phases to this building project. Phase one is he's going to lay the foundation. And the foundation that he lays is on a confession about who he is. He's the Christ. And then a commitment to follow him. So the foundation for his house is you confess that he's the Christ and a commitment to take up your cross, follow him. Phase two is he gives you the house rhythms and the house rhythms are supposed to be marked by weekly. Every seven days, you go up into his presence to experience his presence. And then for six days, you go down into the world with his power. So this weekly rhythm and the way you go out into his world with power is actually by the daily rhythm or sometimes it's even hour by hour or minute by minute rhythm of of the baptismal rhythm of of dying to self, rising to new life, dying and rising. That's how you live in the Spirit's power uh, throughout the week. And then here we're moving into phase three. In phase three, Jesus is going to lay out his house rules. So these are the rules for my house. And you all know that every house has just certain rules might be interesting to think about. At lunch, you can sit around and this might not be the best Mother's Day conversation, but you can have, all right, what are our house rules? What are the ones that are stated? And then what are the ones that are strongly implied? So, you know, I mean, the stated ones, you know, can be things like, all right, shoes off at the door, no balls in the house, no frogs in the house, uh, no sugar before bed. You know, the unstated ones can be things like, don't bother dad when the game's on. Uh, don't interrupt mom when she's texting. Every house has their just certain rules. And what these rules do is they define, this is what is important to us. This is what's important here. These are the characteristics that we want to mark this house. And the banner that Jesus puts over his house is the number one. And in some ways, the only house rule is the house rule of sacrificial love. In this house, we, we lovingly sacrifice for one another. That's the defining characteristic. And the more I spend time in Matthew, I'm just amazed at the order and the structure and the beauty. And what he does is he lays out in chapters 13 through 17, uh, in essence, our faith. What do we believe? Who Jesus is culminating that he's the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he starts here to transition. Now he's going to lay out for us in the next three chapters, uh, our love. What does it mean to love one another? And then after that, he's going to move into what's our hope. So we're in the love section. So you can think about this section as a practical guide for how you love one another. Oh, love one another. This is a how-to manual for having healthy relationships. And in many ways, it might be one of the most practical sections of the whole, whole gospel. How do we love one another? And what it's going to go through is a whole kind of series of almost case studies, like how do you deal with People who, 1724, you know, how do you act around non-Christians? And then starting at 18, 1 through 5, how do you act around competitive brothers and sisters? 
How do you deal with sibling rivalries? How do you act towards the weak who are struggling, stumbling? How do you act around those who are slipping and straying? What do you do around those who are openly sinning and need to be confronted? And then what do you do? How do you forgive? Ultimately, the final word in this house is for forgiveness. So you can look in your bulletin and just see a, you know, a little overview because in Matthew 17, 24, all the way to the end of 18, or first part of 19, because remember when, when Matthew wrote his gospel, there were no chapters, no verse numbers. So this is a section where the chapters that were put in about 1500s aren't super helpful because it kind of breaks the flow. So it starts in 24 when they came to Capernaum, so a new section shifting, and then it culminates in 19.1, now when Jesus had finished saying these things. And so what Matthew does, the way he orders his gospel so we can learn to teach all that Jesus, uh, so we can, we can learn to teach all that he has taught us, is he arranges his gospel around five major blocks of teaching. You know, the Sermon on the Mount, five through seven, then the Sermon on Missions, so five major sermons. Uh, Thirteen is the Sermon on what the kingdom is, pictures of the kingdom. And this is the fourth of his major sermons. So in essence, from 1724 all the way to the end of 18 is one sermon. So don't worry, we're not going to do it all in one sermon. We're going to take three or four weeks to look at it all. But you'll need to know just kind of the context and where we are because it's one big unit of thought. And what Jesus is going to do here is he's going to give us the three attitudes that are to mark his house. These are the attitudes of sacrificial love, uh, an attitude of flexibility, an attitude of humility, an attitude of sensitivity. These are the attitudes to mark this house. And then three actions. So what do you do? And uh, that sacrificial love will seek. It seeks after those who are wayward. It confronts. One of the big lessons is how do you have a healthy confrontation? So it seeks, it confronts, and then it forgives. So the, the attitudes are attitudes of flexibility, humility, sensitivity. The actions are ones where we seek others out, we confront, and then we forgive. So for this morning, we're going to focus on the first two. We're going to look at the uh, first two attitudes of flexibility and humility. So let's pick up the story. Let's start with 24. We'll read through the section and then we'll cycle back and make some notes. So when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? Isn't that interesting? They have a question with Jesus and who do they go to? They don't go to him. They go to Peter. Does your teacher not pay the tax? And notice how Peter responds. Yes. Yes, he does. And then they came into the house and Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them. Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes out. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for you. So here's this first kind of attitude that Jesus wants to mark the people in his house, his household, and it's an attitude of sacrificial love's attitude is one of flexibility, flexibility to those who are outside. So kind of the first step is, all right, how do you deal with people who are outside the house? And the key point that he's making here is that they're going to intentionally limit their freedom 
so that they will not give an offense to others. Intentionally limit their freedom so they won't be offensive. The dynamic is one of self-limiting freedom. That's what love does. So let's look at the text and get a little pieces of it. Notice when they came to Capernaum, so they're coming back. They've been traveling, coming back to Peter's home, uh, back to where Jesus' is home base. They come back in town, and who's there to greet them? The tax guy. Welcome home. Here's your bill you haven't paid. Now guess what? Pay your taxes. And what's interesting is they just all assume this is something that Jesus is going to do. Love Peter's response. Or the question, does your teacher pay the tax? It's just that that's not a question. That's an accusation. You know how many questions, you know, many accusations are phrased in the form of questions. And so it's an accusation. And Peter's response is just, yes, he does. So they just assume this is something that Jesus does. Now, why would they assume that? Well, because just in their world, there was kind of five basic practices that it was just assumed this is what everybody does. You don't even have to ask. And one of them was the regular payment of the temple tax. This is the temple tax, two drachma, two days wage. It would go to the temple to pay the salaries, you know, for the high priest, pay for the sacrifices, especially the one, uh, what we call Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So specifically for uh, that celebration. Just assumed everybody does this. It's assumed that everybody makes regular pilgrimages to Jerusalem. You see Jesus doing that. Just assume that everybody goes to worship at the synagogue on the Sabbath. This is what everybody does. You don't have to ask if you're going to. It's just what's done. Keeping the yearly feast is the fourth one. And the fifth one is you maintain organized communication with Jews who are in the diaspora. That's why it was so easy for Paul to go into any synagogue basically in the world at the time and be able to speak. Because these are just things that assumed everyone does. But here you see there's a little, uh, there's a gap between what they assume Jesus is going to do and then what they see. And they go, all right, well, why, what, what, what's going on here? And there's lots of interesting side trails you could take uh, down this. We're going to try and stay on the core path. But note in Matthew chapter 22, when, the, uh, when they want to trip Jesus up, trying to trap him, You know, one of the questions they ask is, does he pay taxes to Caesar or not? So this is kind of an explosive question. It's like, all right, what do you do? Do you pay pay these things? But in this context, it's taxes that are going to the temple to provide the sacrifice. I find it interesting, you know, Jesus isn't all that impressed with people who find creative ways not to pay their taxes. You know, here probably the biggest parallel kind of for us is this would be, you know, people who will only give to the church like when they do things they want them to do, uh, that kind of thing. And then it's kind of interesting. Uh, there's this miracle. And then just think about this miracle. Like think about all of this is kind of mind blowing, all of the knowledge that Jesus would have to know that there was a coin in this fish's mouth. Like he would have to know that there was some random person on the sea who had the coin fall out of his pocket and some he would have to know that a fish came up and swallowed it and he would have I mean there's a lot of things he would have to know that's a side trail and then is it only for Peter and Jesus what about the other 11 it's like hey what about me if you're like John could like uh, do I find mine in a squirrel like where do we get our tax that's a side trail um The core truth is that here in Jesus' house, what he wants them to know, look, he says, who are the sons? The sons are free, but so that we don't give an offense. 
And that's going to be a key word throughout this whole thing. That's the word uh, scandalon. So we don't become a stumbling block. So we don't give an offense. And so there's a couple things that this teaches us that we see. One, it helps kind of, it points us to who Jesus is. You know, kind of the irony here of their question. There's a deep irony to their question because they say, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And what they're going to discover is you have no idea how he's going to pay this temple tax. The temple tax goes to the purchase of the sacrificial lamb that's going to pay the penalty for their sins. You have no idea how he's going to pay that tax, but that's coming. And uh, what Jesus is going to do is he's pointing, he says, look, the sons, he said, who do the kings of the earth demand taxes from? It's not their children. Their children don't pay, but it's everyone else. It's their subjects. And you're a child of the king. So first it orients us to who Jesus is, that he's the greater temple. He's the king. But then it lays a firm foundation for who we are. We are children. And what that does is mean we have tremendous freedom. But that freedom is for the ability to be able to serve. So we can be free to then serve. You know, Paul unpacks how he applies this principle in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all so that I might win some of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those who were under the law, I became as one under the law that I might win those who were under the law. To those who were outside the law, I became as one outside the law that I might win those who were outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some I do it all for the sake of the gospel, so I might share with them the blessings. So that's the principle. We're free, but that freedom is meant to uh, be used not to offend outsiders unnecessarily, but to try and win them. And this is something that in our day and age requires a tremendous amount of wisdom. What elements are we called to be flexible on and hold loosely? And then what elements are we called to be firm and fixed and hold tightly? That requires wisdom. But part of the principle here is we're meant to be flexible on those things, to discern and to know that uh, our freedom brings flexibility. Martin Luther kind of summed this up in his manifesto of Christian freedom. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant to all, subject to everyone. So we serve. So it's worth thinking about what areas of your life what relationships need more flexibility so you cannot be unnecessarily offensive? So that's the first, to outsiders. But then it turns, and from 18.1 all the way till 18.35, uh, the whole focus is now on right, how do you deal with those inside? So Jesus already gave us a whole sermon, Matthew chapter 10, on mission to those who are outside. So in some ways, this is just kind of reiterating, reminding. But here from 18, the whole chapter is all about all right, how do you deal with those who are inside the house, inside this household? And then the next thing that he highlights is sacrificial loves humility. This is the attitude. So the question, first question is, all right, how does sacrificial love use its freedom? It uses its freedom not to exalt itself, but to serve others. Now the next question is, all right, how does sacrificial love use uh, its ambition? How does it direct its energy? Or the question here is, what is real greatness? Let's read one through five. 
At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will not even enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And then there's a warning, six, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble or sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be cast into the depths of the sea. So here it's sacrificial love's humility. Um, the question here is, all right, how do you respond to competitive brothers and sisters, competitive Christians? What do you do about sibling rivalries? And what we'll see in this whole section is the main enemy that's going to destroy the household is the, the enemy of selfish ambition, selfishness. You know, like what James says, what causes the quarrels among you? Is it not your selfish desires? You want and can't have, so you war. And as we're fumbling our way through parenting, dealing with small-scale sibling squabbles. I often wonder, I've noticed in the last couple months how much mileage I can get out of the simple question that I ask is, how are you being selfish and how are you being selfish? Both of you are being selfish right now, but how? And it's that selfishness that's going to destroy the house. Notice, let's look at their question. You know, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus, and you just wonder, like, what? What would cause you to ask this question? Who is the greatest? And you know, this is one of kind of the fundamental things is, you know, we live, like, do you believe that the family exists or any institution exists to um, exalt you or as a platform where you can express yourself or does it exist to form you and shape you? Over COVID, one of the most influential books I read was Yuval Levin's A Time to Build, where he says one of the breakdowns in our society is all of our major social institutions used to be institutions meant to form you, but they've been transformed now. They're just institutions that are used to express you. So self-expression, not self-formation. That's the tension here. Who is the greatest? Now, what's interesting is every culture, every time, every place has an answer to that question. You know, we might kind of sound, well, that kind of sounds like a funny question, but every single person in this room probably asks it subliminally all the time. Nearly every commercial you see is telling you something about some aspect of an answer to this question. Now, they had an answer. Uh, you know, first century Judaism, they had an answer on who the greatest is. The greatest in the Lord's kingdom is marked by things by like righteousness to follow the law. So those who are the most scrupulous in following the law, those with depth, scripture knowledge that is so deep they can train and teach others, those who are rich in good works, and those who ultimately, the ultimate greatness are those who become martyrs for the kingdom, who are so patriotic they give their life. So that was their answer. I mean, that's not bad answers, actually. You want a pretty decent society, those aren't bad. We kind of probably should be embarrassed if we compared how our culture answers that question. Think about how do we answer who is the greatest? 
Who is the greatest among you? Like, you look on Instagram, and what are some of the marks of the most influential? Clear skin, white teeth, small hips, thick hair. These are the marks of the greatest. You know, people with power, influence, money, talent, athletic ability, artistic ability, business savvy. These are the marks of greatness. Over the, when the Summer Olympics were going on, we had a couple of funny dialogues with the girls because they were celebrating Simone Biles and they kept calling her the goat. And our girls at first were taken aback by that because they were like, wait, 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 um, why do they keep saying the goat? That's not kind. I was like, yes, that is true. As a general life principle, it's never a good idea to call teenage girls barnyard animals. Normally, they don't respond well to that. Pig, cow, chicken, goat. These aren't things we want to call other people. But here, it's a little unique because it's actually an acronym for greatest of all time. And so we have these debates, like who's the GOAT? Who's the greatest of all time? Uh, basketball player, of course, that's not a debate. There's an obvious answer, it's Michael Jordan. And then you have other like debates that people have. Who's the greatest quarterback of all time? Who's the greatest? You know, gymnast was the Olympic one. You know, who is the GOAT? Who is the greatest? Now notice who Jesus points out as the great. Actually, before you notice that, isn't it interesting they say who is? It's not who will be, not who will be once you come to renew and restore all things. It's who is right now, who is the greatest. And look at Jesus' answer. You know, so often he uses pictures to preach, and here he has a living picture where he calls to himself a little child, and he puts him in the middle of them and says, this is an image of the greatest. And there's two things, unless you turn... Unless you repent and become like this child, then you won't even get in. And if you want to be great, you have to humble yourself like this child. So it's worth thinking about, all right, what are the characteristics of little children that would then correspond to greatness in his kingdom? Because, you know, on the one hand, I mean, Paul critiques a certain uh, childishness, you know, when I was a child, I put away childish things, and now that I'm mature, and part of the whole point of the book of Proverbs is that that folly is embedded in the heart of the child, and we have to move them from a place of folly to wisdom. So what, what is the elements of child-likeness that's celebrated? What are the good pieces? You know, Martin Luther said it was their ability to listen. I don't know how many children he were around. He was around, because I'm not sure how skillful they are at listening. But you know, sometimes like you can tell them. You know, there's a certain age bracket where uh, because mommy said becomes the truth to trump all truths, and so there, there's a, a humility of listening. One of the things as I watch my children, I'm amazed at how fully they give themselves to things. I mean, we're called to love the Lord, heart, mind, soul, strength, the totality of who we are, and they can just enter into uh, things fully. You know, they're never ashamed of their, their smallness, how little they are. They love to be given things. They, they receive. So are those pieces? You know, what elements of children is not 
celebrate. I mean, it's, it's not that they're innocent, because if you've been around them, you know they're not. In the Puritan term is vipers and diapers. They're not, they're not innocent. It's not the fact that they're small-minded. It's not their amazing ability to throw temper tantrums at the drop of the hat. What does Jesus highlight as a peculiar characteristic that symbolizes greatness in his kingdom? It's their humility. Something about being humble. This you turn and be humble. See, the reality is that big heads do not fit through the narrow gate. Had a wonderful opportunity two weeks ago to uh, be there with my man Sam, our four-year-old, when he had his first experience on a roller coaster. We're at Universal, and I had to make up for the previous dad fail of forcing my eight-year-old to go on the Velocicoaster, which terrorized her, and now we'll have to set a, a, a counseling fund. <laughs> so I was going to make up for it, and I took Sam on the Woody Woodpecker, I can't remember the name of it, whatever the Woody Woodpecker ride is. But now I, I feel for the engineers of the Woody Woodpecker roller coaster, because it's designed for four-year-olds. It is not designed for people who are 6'5", 240. And so I tried to sit down in this car, and the poor little girl who's, who's helping us sit in, I mean, the gate, the, the, the bar is not moving. And she just puts her hand, she goes, ooh. Uh, so can you can you turn? And it's just hard for someone that says to fit. And that's the way it is with the narrow gate. Like, big heads just do not fit through this narrow way. It's humility. The price of entry is humility. I love how Jesus challenges them because they're talking about glory. And he's talking about, you're not even getting in the door without humility. And ambition will kill the kingdom. I notice that he, they didn't ask about worldly greatness. They asked about king, kingdom greatness. And he says, it begins with humility. He's already told them to pray every single day that thy kingdom come, but it can't come if it's fueled by their desire to be great. And then notice what he says, those, whoever receives in verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So he wants them to get their mind off these grand plans and focus on the little people and the little task that are right in front of them. In some ways, he's not really interested in greatness. He's interested in humble servants. Heard a couple weeks ago a story uh, from the late David Pallison who was telling about one of the uh, men in his church that he was walking with uh, as he faced the last great enemy of death. And he said this man had already gone through tremendous trials. He had lost his wife to suffering, had lost most of his friends. And then as his life was very painfully uh, slipping away through cancer, he just somehow radiated joy. And everyone's very radiated joy. And David and asked him, love like, of the Lord Jesus Christ what, and the like, love of God. What's your secret? How are you Holy so Spirit joyful? And he says, every day I ask the Lord to help me do two things. Help me trust him today with childlike faith and help me be helpful to one person. That's it. Trust him with childlike faith and be helpful to one person. He focused on little tasks, little people, and he was able to end that final battle with victory and triumph. See, what Jesus actually is trying to do, he wants to awaken our ambition for greatness. But he says, this is the path. And that's what he calls them to. I mean, just some of the applications. This is a beautiful call to childcare in all of its many facets and many forms. As we celebrate parenting, you know, focus on little people, 
little places, but also in all the other ways it can work itself out in adoption, in foster care, in mentoring, big brother, big sister programs, all of the small scale ways we can serve the little ones. You know, I'm always kind of intrigued because in church, it's just kind of a standard, what's the word I'm looking for? Not stereotype, just like a truism, a maxim that like, you know, children's ministry is always the hardest to get volunteers for. Now, I wonder why that is. I wonder why. Because here Jesus is clearly saying this is the path to greatness. And some of us will say, well, it's not really my gifting. And that's true. I mean, for some, it's not, it's a gifting thing. But probably more than not, it's not necessarily a gifting. It's not so much that you're not good with kids. Uh, it's just that you kind of think too highly of yourself. So some people have a hard time coming down to their level because we're on, think we're on a much higher level. But notice that word such. Whoever receives one such child. But Jesus is expanding the net and saying all Focus, work, labor for anyone who's like the child, weak, dependent, needy. You give yourself selflessly. That's what greatness in this kingdom is. Greatness in this kingdom is not that when you walk the door, through the door, people pause, people want selfies with you. Greatness is you don't even notice you as you walk in because you're noticing everyone else. All the insignificant people. You know, in our world, it preaches the opposite. Seek greener pastures, greater tasks, more influence. And Jesus says, focus on the task and the people right here, right now. And you know, in every family, every office, every classroom, every group, every neighborhood has those little insignificant people who are ignored, who are disliked. Do you see them? Do you disregard them or dismiss them? This is the path to life. It's the path to health. And, you know, dealing with a lot of these little people is not all snuggles and giggles. As you know, it can be difficult because they're very selfish. And people can be demanding and manipulative. But Jesus says that self-sacrifice for the, the little ones is how you achieve greatness in my kingdom. But notice the key word that he ends, whoever receives one such child in my name. In my name. See, that's actually dignifying all acts of service that are done in his name. Just like Paul says, thanksgiving sanctifies all food. This act of in his name sanctifies and lifts up all activities. So you can have the most compelling mission that drives you. Like we are gonna, we are gonna create life on Mars. And you can have you know, the most wild, audacious goal, but if it's not done in his name, he's not all that impressed, no matter how big and audacious it is. But you can have the smallest focus and the smallest intent, and if it's done in his name, that brings greatness. It can even be something like your yard. We say, this little, this little patch of earth is my domain, and I'm going to bring beauty out of it in his name. Because the way down, uh, the, the pathway down is actually how we come up. You know, the reality for the disciples and us, you only really ever discover who's great on judgment day. But here, the first two attitudes that he wants for his house, we got to redirect our freedom so it's not used to serve us, but it's used to serve others. And then we have to redirect our ambition so we understand what real greatness is like. 
Now, I hinted at it earlier, but, you know, no one was as free and no one was as great who's ever walked this earth as Jesus was. So how did he use his freedom? Who did he serve? Where does he display his greatness at the most sacrificial and the most fully? You know, it's interesting, the tax was the temple tax. Is does your teacher pay it? Oh, you have no idea. You know, that temple tax, Exodus 30, it was paid as the ransom for your, our life. You know, it's been said that the only two realities in life are what? Death, taxes. You know, here we see those two realities coming together because it's by his death that we are free from this tax. There is no taxation now without his representation as he represents us. And every week when we have communion, we celebrate, we're reminded of this tremendous display, this gift of grace that displays for us, everyone who comes to his table, this is our weekly reminder of sacrificial love at its most full. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and then he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body. Take in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. He said, this cup represents my blood that's shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is how you return. You humbly repent, recognizing that you can't earn your way in. You have to receive your way in. And like a little child, greatly receive. And if you repent, this blood is the payment. This is the payment for the tax that you cannot pay. Drink in remembrance of me. Now let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We ask that you help us, help us to have the wisdom to know how to walk through this world with wise flexibility. Help us to know the convictions that we should hold tightly and deeply and never budge on. And then help us to know the things that um, we need to be open-handed and flexible with. I pray for anyone in this room now who's find, who finds themselves right now in difficult situations, whether it's with family members or difficult situations at work or a situation where they are trying to navigate those two things. Give them the wisdom they need. Give them the courage they need. Now pray for us that you help us. Uh, I thank you for the tremendous way that we can dignify all of our small acts of service. Help us to be people who are humble. Help us to be people who will joyfully look for those little ones, the weak, the wounded, the weary, and seek to serve them. So I pray for everyone in the room that this week when we have multiple opportunities to do that, you will help us, help us to do it well. I pray for all of our mothers today. I pray for all of those who today is a joyful day. Help them to enter into the joy of the celebration. And pray for all those who today is a hard day. Maybe it's a hard day because they remember a beloved mother who is gone. Or maybe it's a hard day because they remember a beloved child that's gone. Or maybe it's a hard day because they are reminded of a hope that they feel never materialized and it's gone. Pray for them that you, uh, we thank you for the gift that you've brought us into your household. And we have dozens and dozens of brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. So help us to live in the joy of the new family that your son provides. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.
And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever, and always. Amen. Go in peace.